a Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxis Tires and Alpine Stars Protects on RacerXOnline.com. With your continued support of our sponsors, we have surpassed 1,000 podcasts delivered with over 7 million downloads. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out and donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. I'm Steve Mathis. Thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Get the Pulpamex app. You can search all of the podcasts that I've done over the years right on there. Yeah, and also to iTunes, Podcatcher, Stitcher, any kind of stuff like that. If you're wondering about older podcasts, uh, please check it out. I get tweets and emails about uh, why didn't you talk to this guy and why didn't you talk to that guy. Well, go in and check it out for yourself and uh, search and uh, get your answers right there. I want to thank Fly Racing for uh, titling this thing. Look, dirt bikes are, are exciting, we know that, but it is February 2nd as we do this. So blasting up a snow-covered mountainside on a snow bike or snowmobile is also pretty cool. So grab some of Fly Racing's tactical snow gear and get riding. Check out the new stylish and functional carbon jacket created for those who want to explore the deepest of powder beyond the trail and crowds. FlyRacing.com has got mountain bike stuff, they've got dirt bike stuff, they've got snowmobile stuff, they've got uh, street, street line as well. So FlyRacing.com, uh, check out. That they've got what you need, plus Weston Pike and Blake Baggett and the Seven Deuce Deuce and all those guys now wear fly. Also, too, I want to thank the folks at Alpine Stars. You know the name. They're worldwide uh, renowned for their quality products. The Tech 10 Boots, the A4 Chess Pro, just some of the things that Alpine Star does. And uh, whether it's uh, Justin Barster, Jason Anderson, or Eli Tomac, right now, A-Star's gear is killing it as well. Alpine Star protects the Tech 10. It's been continuously developed in racing for uncompromised performance and durability. And Maxxis Tires, the MXST tire is coming out real soon, developed by Jeremy McGrath. To learn more, visit Maxxis.com. Uh, from your bike to your truck and almost everything in between with wheels, Maxxis Tires will have you hooking up, pulling a whole shot, and beating the competition. We want to thank those guys for coming on board. Without further ado, let's get to our guest here. Uh, this man raced the GPs for a number of years raced uh, in England for a number of years. You may recognize him now from commentating the GPs over the few years, and uh, he was at Ana- Anaheim to check out the Supercross. Rob Andrews, what's up, Rob? How are you, man? Hi, Steve. Um, I'm great, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me uh, on to do this. It's uh, both a, prev- a privilege and a pleasure oh, to do fa- it. Well, uh, yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm fa- good. Thank Coombs. He's the one who said, hey, you should do a podcast with Rob Andrews. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So Coombs is the one who yeah. really started it all. Well, I've known Davey for quite some time. I'm, I met him. I didn't know him when I was racing. I think I met him at a GP at Balkenswad, uh, probably in about 92, something like that. But Davey's a cool guy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, hey, so you were at Anaheim. I hung out with the dogger a little bit. Um, what do you think of the Supercross race? What do you think of when you come over and watch one of these things? What do I think of? The first thing I think of is, wow, it's big time. Um, you know, who, who would have thought? We all started this 
sport by riding dirt bikes around, a, uh, if you live in this country anyway, in Great Britain, a muddy field. And when I go to Anaheim, and I've been to lots of supercrosses over the years, but every time I go there, it just blows me away of just how big time it is. Who, yeah. who would have thought that riding bikes around a field could turn into something like that? You know, amazing. The, the, the presentation, um, you know, the fact there's so many fans there, the stadium is awesome, the, the presentation is awesome. The Americans really do uh, a good job of that. The, you mm-hmm. know, the national anthem is just gets the hairs on the back of your neck, even though I'm not an American. Just to see everybody standing there and that girl singing that in the stadium, it's, uh, it's spine-tingling stuff. Yeah, it's really, really a neat spectacle. Supercross is, and and it's it's. I think it's it, you know it's so far removed from GP motocross, you know your roots and and, the, and where the sport started. But on the other hand, it's still like it's such a different discipline. It's almost unrecognizable from you know manhandling a CR five hundred around around Valkenswad to racing Anaheim Supercross. It is such a different set of skills, you know. It is completely different um, thing altogether. You know, it, it's you can't compare it to motocross, but it, it has its place. And I enjoy supercross at the beginning of the year just as much as anybody else, and just as much as I enjoy watching the motocross as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, two different things. You know, I, I did a few supercrosses myself, not in the states. I raced at, at Paris and, and smaller ones like that. Um, I would have loved to have. You know, if I'd been born in a different era to have, have, have raced in the American Supercross series, who wouldn't? You know, the young kids from from Europe, many yeah. of them want to go over and, and race in America. And, and when you just see how big time it is, why wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah. But, but yeah, it has its place, just like outdoor motocross has its place. Yep, absolutely. So in your heyday, RJ goes over to Sheffield, I think, a couple times, and they have a few races. Do you line up against them? Do you race those things? No, he... he I didn't really cross over with, with RJ. I did meet him once okay. because uh, where I lived, uh, my local practice track, uh, completely out of the blue. I didn't know this was going to happen. RJ turned up <laughs> in 1989 to do a training school. Okay. He had broken wrist back then. Uh-huh. When, you remember Danny Storbeck landed on mm-hmm. him and broke his wrist. Um, oh. And it just, you know, he wasn't even racing. And suddenly I go to practice one day and Rick Johnson's there doing a training school. And uh, so I turned up and I just sort of did my motos and tried to keep out of his way. But <laughs> yeah. I did meet him that day. But uh, I never raced against him uh, in the UK. I did race against him in Paris. Well, I use that term loosely. I was in the yeah. same race as well, him. Wow, yeah, that was my next question was, did you ever go to Bercy? Yeah, so you did, yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did do Bercy in 87. And uh, uh, I found a video a few years ago of, of that race. And uh, I mean, I didn't make the final or anything, but it was a, a real thrill to yeah. race against those guys. But I got this, I found this video on YouTube and, and I got a screenshot of the uh, the start of the heat race. And I got a good start in that one. So there's me and there's RJ and there's Ron Machine, right side by side. <laughs> nice, nice. So I, I, that's a prized uh, possession of mine to, yeah. to have a, a, a picture like that alongside those greats. I met RJ at, at Anaheim again, actually. Oh, you did? Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I did. I ran into him when I was with, uh, with Davey, and I said to him, because Davey introduced me to him, and I did say, we, we did meet once before, and I told him the story, and he said, yeah, yeah, 1989, he, he was over promoting the, the Supercross that was going to happen later that year, uh-huh. so he did remember it, so oh, I, was, cool. I was really pleased that he remembered that. Isn't it funny, Rob? So, you know, from your side of the of the Atlantic, so 60s, 70s Europeans are just the master of motocross. They beat down the Americans regularly. You know, uh, Lackey finally breaks through, Laporte breaks through, and then we have this huge shift to where the, the, the best European racers 
can't beat the Americans, and the Americans, thanks to the influx of Supercross, and they're better for a decade, maybe a decade and a half. And now in 2017, it's flipped, I think, anyways, where we're now Americans are the best at Supercross, and no one will ever doubt that, and it, it, there's no doubt. Guys like Marvin can come over and do pretty well. But in motocross, six destinations losses in a row. Um, Hurlings wins Indiana and got a little lucky, but still Hurlings wins Indiana. The tables have almost turned again where the Europeans are now better than the Americans in motocross. It's not as drastic as it was in the 70s. It's not as drastic as it is in the 80s when the Americans were better. But I think you can make a legit case for the, the European-based motocross racers are better at motocross than the Americans. And Supercross, of course, will always be the Americans' thing. But it's, it's, we've gone through, and you and I are old enough to remember, it's, it's come around and back around again, don't you feel? Uh, yeah, and I guess it'll flip the other way again one day as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe, right? <laughs> it, 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 it seemed to be very sudden, in a short space of time, that the Americans suddenly got, got good. You know, back, back in the early 80s, I guess it was the, it was Supercross, wasn't it? You know, I think so. Came, yep, I uh, think so. They did Supercross. That made them very sharp, very aggressive, whereas uh, the GP guys were doing 45-minute motos. They were more about pacing themselves and, and being smooth, and they, they didn't have that aggression. But even in 85, when I raced the, the Nations, you know, Thorpe won that day. Uh, he beat David Bailey fair and square, and Keith Vanderden won mm-hmm. a motor as well, I, I think, there. Um, so... But also at that time in the nation, there seemed to be a bit of disinterest as well from, from the established stars then. You know, the, the nation, it's always been important in, in my mind, but I can remember some of the, the top GP guys not wanting to take part in that. You know, that, that yeah. race in 85, there was no, Mallard wasn't racing. I don't know whether he was injured, but yeah. there was a little bit of disinterest there. But certainly it's flipped around now. Um, and, you know, why is that? I don't know. I, I guess the... You know, the, the GP tracks or the tracks in Europe became more similar than uh, to the American tracks. So we started getting more jumps. You know, back in the day of Thorpe and Mallard, those guys weren't very good at jumps. No. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was a good jumper. I liked the whole Supercross thing. I used to love jumping. And, and so I would jump stuff that, that those guys wouldn't even think of. And that was, that was hurting them yep. uh, compared to the Americans. Nowadays, I think the GP tracks have, have caught up. Perhaps if you can call that, they are more jumping. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't personally don't think there are too many jumps. I, I think I'm not a fan of, of a lot of the GP tracks. Maybe we'll talk about that a bit more later. But yeah. I, I, regardless of, of my thoughts on it, the, the, the tracks have become more jumpier. They've become more American, perhaps even more so than the American tracks. That's got the European riders better at jumping. It's got them more aggressive. So that's one contributing factor. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there is just a deep talent pool at the moment, uh, particularly in the in the 450 class. You know, everybody's forced into the 450 class because of that age rule. That's not something I agree with. But love him or loathe him, you, you, you can't deny that Mr. Luongo has concentrated all the talent in the 450 class and there's, there's something like more than 20 GP winners going to be contesting the world championship um, uh, this mm-hmm. year so it's a very deep pool and you bring each other on don't you yeah you know, if you want to get faster you ride against the faster riders and that's probably hurting the Americans now because there's not so many fast riders there uh, to drag everybody along yeah that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. It's a complicated subject. Oh, it is. And, and probably people are smashing their computers as we speak, Rob, who are angry. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but no, it, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. Uh, Americans do Supercross eight months of the year and Motocross four months of the year. And 
And, you know, that's it's just uh, funny how that's came because the Americans used to also do Supercross, you know, most of the year. And they would still whoop the Europeans at those nations or any yeah. kind of race they showed up at. So I'm not yeah. so sure that's an excuse. It's a reason, but I'm not sure that's so an excuse. Um, I like your theory on the the jumping has improved so much with Hurlings and Caroli and these DeSalle guys and these. Uh, that's maybe that that's what's brought them to be you know close to the Americans, if not better, a lot of times um, each and every year. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting topic for sure. Um, so you do some commentating for the GPS. Giuseppe Luongo, you stream. It's it's. I mean, I certainly I, I couldn't. I got banned from a press pass at Glen Helen one year, so I'm not exactly on the number one list of of fans of the GPS. Um, I see some good things. I see what he's trying to do with a MotoGP style uh, F1 style of racing, where you just can't show up, you know, like you can in America, and you used to be able to for years. Uh, taking the tracks away from some of the uh, the older circuits. And making some man-made things, uh, I think Assen works. I like Assen. However, however, some of the other ones, not so much. Um, you know, in '89, a guy named Trampas Parker shows up out of the blue and wins this title. Well, nowadays uh, there's no Trampas Parker that could show up. He has to pay money to get a ride, or he has to be so good that you already know about him. I'm torn, Rob. I- I'm torn on the the stream and the and you talked on, you touched on the age rule. I hate it. I think that's a terrible rule. But there's some good things about it, for sure. Um, what What's your thoughts on the series now? I mean, you raced it in its heyday. You raced it. You, you, you watched it in the 90s. Um, I don't know. Like, it's not – he's not – that just – Ustream isn't the most terrible thing in the world, like many would, por- would portray it. However, I'm not so sure I agree with a lot of the direction of it. Uh, there's a lot of good things that they've done. Um you, you can't question the the professionalism of it, the the spectacle of it. You, you go to a GP, um, you know, and the size of the trucks and and, and the, the, the whole look of the place. It is very professional. Uh, so th- there are a lot of good things that he's done. There are a lot of things that I don't agree with. Um, you know, I don't agree with the age rule. Uh, I don't agree with the the way that the tracks have gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I speaking five minutes ago about the fact that that's maybe brought the riders on. It has, but I, I think that it's gone too far. The tracks are too jumpy. They're too fast. They don't always make for good racing. The thing with jump, Steve, is that if we go to watch a race anywhere, uh, I've never been to a U.S. national. I hope to uh, at some point, but mm-hmm. let's imagine that we go to wherever Larocco's Leap is. Well, what's that track where Larocco's Leap is? Uh, Redbud. Redbud. Let's say we go to Redbud. But the first place I would go would be to go over and stand by that jump and see the huge jump. Right. And it would be mightily impressive. But then after you've watched 40 guys go through there for five laps, you know, that's 200 riders that have gone through there doing the same jump, lap after lap after lap. It's just getting boring. The one thing that is consistently exciting is, is close racing. And by close racing, I mean overtaking and battles for the lead backwards and forwards. And I don't think that, that the style of the tracks these days, not just in GPs, but maybe even in America as well, is very conducive to, to, to overtaking. So I don't like the way that the, the, the tracks have gone. Uh, 23-year-old rule, I don't like. Uh, some riders are just better on, on smaller bikes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, They're, sm- uh, they're smaller in, in, in stature or whatever. How can you you know, just be like, yeah. Because, yeah. 
it's undoubtedly concentrated the talent in the 450 class. And I know that's one of, that was always one of Giuseppe's stated claims. Um, but you've you kind of got too much talent in there, not enough rides to go around. So you've got guys that are deserving the factory rides, they're not getting them. You've got a bit of a void in the 250 class, although, as we see both sides of the Atlantic, there's always somebody new that comes up and, and, and gets up to, up to speed. Um, but I also don't like the fact that the privateer is now excluded. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's there are riders paying huge sums of money to to be able to get a ride to take part in the World Championship Series. I just think that is wrong. Uh, there are riders that that should be racing there. You know, and if you translate it back to my day, I would have never got a chance in GPs if this system was in place back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I worked my way up. I was I was a slow burner. I got past, um, you know, over a number of years, and I would, I would completely miss the opportunity, and I certainly didn't have 150,000 euros or whatever it cost to buy a place in a team. So I don't agree with that. I think that the, the riders that are on the track for the GP should be the 40 fastest riders that are available on that day. And the way the system is at the moment, it doesn't guarantee that. You've got some riders that are in there just because they pay the entry fee. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about pay rides, if, if someone's got a wealthy family and they want to pay €150,000 to buy a ride, it's not our place to tell them how to spend their money. But they should have to qualify to be in that race. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't guarantee them a place on the start line. It's, it's yeah. by all means, let them get an entry to the race, but they should have to go through qualifying so that on the day there are the 40 fastest riders in that race. And that's what we used to get back in the day. At GPs, you would have 100 or more sometimes riders that show up on the Saturday. We would do time that qualifying on the Saturday to, to select the 40 fastest. And therefore... Every GP, you've got the 40 fastest riders in the race on the Sunday, and that's one thing that I would like to see come back to GPs. Yeah, it's it's you know these overseas races they go to. I get what they're doing. They're fu- the government is is funding Ustream and and funding these tracks to have this to bring tourists and to bring you know a claim to their to their area where the track is and this and that. But it's a little bit of parody of motocross. Like when you have 23 guys on the gate. And Antonio Caroli falls in the first turn. He's the points leader, and before you know it, he's twelfth. I just, I, I spare me the 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 great comeback that Antonio made. You know, with the twenty three guys on the gate. So, but it, I, they don't seem to care that there's twenty three guys, twenty six guys on a gate uh, at some of these overseas races, and I that blows me away, Rob. That I don't know. That's just maybe I'm old school like you, and I'm I'm wondering what's going on. But that's terrible. That's well, a terrible look. <laughs> It, it is, but in you know, I've I've met Mr. Luanga on a number of occasions and discussed this sort of stuff with him. Um, you know, so I try and see it from both ways. I know that the the FIM, who are the world governing body, um, they don't really have any say in the GPs because mm-hmm. you know Luongo's got the whole shooting match, as you probably know, for a very long time. Uh, but I know that the FIM always were pressing for it to become a true world championship. So I know he has pressure from the FIM to get races on other continents, not just in Europe, as it was back yeah. in my day. Uh, so they are the ones pushing to go to other, other continents. Um, so it's always going to be difficult to, to get large numbers of, you know, a full lineup. If you're going to go to Argentina or places like that, it's a long way. It's expensive. Um, so there is some outside influence there that's coming into play. But as you mentioned, a lot of these races are supported by the government. Um, and I question how 
how valid a business model it is that you have to have an outside influx of money mm-hmm. without any any return wanted from that really other, other than the yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Aren't you going to run out of? Aren't you, gonna, yeah. aren't you going to run out of country soon? You know, because I, I think things yeah. should be. It should be self self supporting, self yeah. financing, and it's not self financing if the race stands or falls on whether you can get a million bucks from the government. Yeah, and 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 you know these these teams in the flyaway races. You're eligible for some subsidies a little bit if you go through the approved Ustream travel agents, which I heard is owned by Giuseppe Luongo, the, the approved Ustream travel uh, uh, agency. Um, that Some of the teams and riders have told me that over the years, and I'm just like, come on, man. But you can only get the subsidy if you, if you go through them, and it's, I don't know. It's just, you know, I don't know how these teams don't, I don't know how the Roger Harveys and pit buyers of the world don't sit there and be like, wait, wait, stop. We're not going there. We're not going there in front of 200 people or whatever, you know? I don't know. But they just seem to sign up and go along with it, so I guess more power well, to uh, Ustream. I'll tell you why that is, Steve, because the, you know, ultimately it's the, it's the Japanese and the Austrian factories that are, that are financing this sport. So you use Roger Harvey as an example there. He, he was the, the general manager of, of HR. HRC. If you're HRC in Japan, you really don't care about the the, the petty infighting and petty complaints mm-hmm. of people on the ground at the GPs. Whoever's signing the checks in Japan says, how much budget do we need for this year? Okay, yes, there you've got the budget. They don't want to be uh, bothered with people yeah. saying, yeah, but we don't like this and we don't like that and we don't think we should have to go there and this isn't very good and there's not really enough riders and, and all those other things. So um, although I'm certain that a lot of the, the team managers in Europe uh, have some strong thoughts about the situation, they are just, uh, they're relying on the, on the factories to, to yeah. finance all of this. So, so they're, their hands are tied. There's, there's yeah. not a great deal that they can do. You know, the factories just won a world championship, and they want to write a check and get a world championship at the end of the year. Yep. Uh, and so that's that's why they don't stick together. You know. It, yeah, yeah, it yeah. No, we s- we see the same thing over here a little bit in Supercross. Supercross is very profitable, and some teams are you know getting a little frustrated with um, you know nothing being done to help them out, and teams are folding up. And but we always have a new rich guy coming into the pit, so. You know, the, the, it's kind of masks some of the issues, and then they're so competitive with each other that they can never get together, you know, and figure things out. They'll never get, you know, they'll never get together to be like, hey, let's all figure this out and get some help here, you know. And but, yeah, uh, it's a that's why there won't yeah. be a riders' union because the riders also have their hands yeah. tied. The yeah. riders may have their thoughts, but they're not going to stick together because the riders are employed by the factories, yeah. and the factories are going to say you're not taking part in that. And just by the same in the same way. The, the teams in Europe are not going to um, kick up a stink about something because they're also being paid by the factory in Japan or KTM yeah. or, or whoever. Um, That's my view. Pretty shocking to see decades race decades old race team of Sylvain Gabor's and the Suzuki squad that Stefan Everts took over. Pretty shocking to see that done. Suzuki pulled out, um, you know, and all that. So yeah, it's uh, that's not a good thing. That, that was a real shock to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it always seemed that Suzuki were perhaps the least financed of all the teams, and since Stefan took over, they didn't have an energy drink sponsor. 
Um, you know, I think their league sponsor last year was maybe Red Sand. You know, Red Sand yeah. is a practice track. It's, it's a track in Spain. So I think they were maybe struggling for budget. But I, I don't know. The, the, you know yeah. I'm not close enough to yeah. it to, to know stuff like that. But it's sad to see any factory pulling out. But, you know, I think Suzuki have done it in the, in the past. They'll be back. I'm sure they will. Yeah, I hope so, right? Um, you think so. All right. Let's uh, – well, you know what? Before we go, Antonio Caroli, uh, what a – what a hero, man. The guy, you know, Jeffrey Hurlings is coming, and his time is going to be here shortly. But for now, I mean, when you talk about Gabor's and Everett's and Thorpe, Malerb, I mean, Antonio Caroli might be maybe the best GP rider ever. Uh, you know, he doesn't have Everett's win record. He doesn't have uh, the titles yet, but it, it, I just feel this guy is just so amazing. It's such a different time now. I'm not sure if it's apples to apples to apples anymore to talk about that, but when you want to talk about all-time Grand Prix motocross racers, Antonio Caroli to me is just maybe the best, if not right there. Yeah, it was incredible what he did last year, um, you know, to... Uh, to come back from from you know a couple of lackluster years really, yep. uh, and really raise his game, and particularly later on in the season when Hurlings really got his act together, that that was very very impressive. You know, we all thought Hurlings would be blinding fast in the in the 450 class. He wasn't to start with, but then he was going really quick, and uh, you know to see Cairoli just raise his game to match him. Which was very impressive. But when I watched the USGP on the Saturday, I wasn't there. I watched it on the internet. Mm-hmm. I had to call my friend Jack Burnicle the, the, that evening to say, "Look, I just watched this qualifying race, and oh my God, those two were going yeah. so fast in that." You know, I've, I've been around this sport a long time. It, it takes a lot to sort of impress me, but watching those guys, I was impressed. You could yeah. just tell they were really, really on it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's cool to see, uh, and uh, it, they're they're set up for a great battle next year. Man, I'm looking forward to yeah. it. You know, um, let's get in the time machine a little bit and go back to your career. Uh, growing up in England, I, I'm guessing I don't exactly know how old you are you are or how old Graham Noyce is, but was he sort of somebody that was around and somebody that you shot for, like an idol of yours or a hero of yours? Uh, yes, he was. Graham was world champion in '79, uh-huh. um, so I did I did cross over with Graham a bit. Um, but uh, you know, he was really his peak was a few years before me. But we did have a few GPs together when he mm-hmm. was on his on his way down, and that's kind of how it is in, in racing. You know, you got the good guys, and then they tail off, and you you all cross over. You might be only a couple of three years apart. But, yeah. uh, I remember Graham winning the World Championship in 79. I only started riding in 77. Okay. I never yep. thought I was going to be any good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all start riding just for fun, and, and you know, I, I, I never thought I would amount to anything. So I can remember Graham winning the World Championship, and yeah, he was an, he was an idol to me. And then gradually I got a little bit better, and, yep. you know, the guys that were in my schoolboy class all got seemingly really good, really quick, like Jeremy Watley. You know, he, he came straight to schoolboys and then yeah. boom, he's up in British championships and, and then GPs. It took me a few years to, uh, to to catch up. So it was kind of strange when I did get into GPs and then find and British championships that, you know, those guys that I'd looked up to, Graham Noyce and Neil Hudson uh-huh. and Thorpe, of course, uh, you know, in, in the, the, the GPs as well, people like Carquist and, and Malab, it was really... I find it really bizarre that I was sat on the start line next to these guys because as far as I was aware, I yeah. was just a, a kid kid from Worcester that started riding motocross and, 
you know, couldn't believe I'd got to that, that position. I remember the first 250GP I qualified for, I sat on the line alongside uh, Jackie Vimond and Roland Depold, if uh-huh. you know that name. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think uh, probably Heinz Kinnigadner was in there. And just thought, what am I doing on this start line with guys <laughs> that I'd seen in the magazines? And I won't say I've got pictures on the wall, I didn't do that. But, you know, people that I'd read about, and all of a sudden there was me. You know, it's like yeah. I was going to wake up from a dream. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did this happen? Um so is was is Thorpey a little older than you, or were you in his group of kids and guys coming up? Um, uh, he's actually uh, he's actually a few months younger than me. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But but when I was in the, when I started the schoolboys, he because he'd been racing since he was six, and so he was, he was okay. very very good all yep. all the way through the schoolboys, and he was that good that they moved him up an age class. Mm-hmm. So I didn't race against David in the schoolboys. Ah, okay. Um, and then when I eventually got into the adults and ended up finally getting into the British Championship, he'd already been established there. But he's actually a little bit a little bit younger than, than me. But yep. when I got into British Championships and then into GPs and I got to know David very well and the dads got on well with David's dad Keith and the GPs my dad would take Keith out for dinner on a Saturday night because Keith was in a van of course so he never really got to get a proper meal so my dad would come to the races he'd go out for dinner with Keith so we all got along really good Um, it was a nice time to be involved in that yeah it really was so your whole kind of career because this this happened for, for a number of years it doesn't happen so much now but are you trying to balance like making a living in the English championships that where you can, you know, place on the podium or win and make money versus going to the GPs. I mean, sometimes you had a full GP ride. It looks like looking at your, at your website. Um, but were you always trying to balance like, Hey, I got to make a living and I got to, I got to win this British championship, but there's a race in, in, you know, Austria that I can go to and, and get top 10 or whatever. Like how much of a, of a balance was that for you? You know, when you were in your prime, uh, when I was in my prime, it was no problem making money. You know, it, it, uh, I was—I did have a factory ride in in '86. I had a full factory 500 in 1986. Mm-hmm. I rode Team Kawasaki in '88. Um, you know, I was never at the level of Thorpe and those guys. But uh, you know, back then, the British Championships never clashed with the GPs. Of course, oh, okay. so you've got 12 GPs. I think you've got six British Championships, and they were always organized so they didn't clash so we did do the british championships but there wasn't a great deal of prize money there Mm -hmm. Uh, the gps if you were qualifying you know you made more than enough money to get to the race and 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 a little bit beside and then we did french internationals in between so on the weekends off we would get to go to to french internationals where um you get some start money start money as as well as prize money and how much start money you got depended on you know, how big a name you were and what yeah. sort of reputation you'd got and, and if you got a good manager they, they would arrange the um the entries. But, you know, French internationals, you have a good day, you could clear thousand pounds, you know, whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. Fifteen hundred dollars back in back in the eighties, I suppose. Yeah. And and there were some riders that, that that had finished doing Grand Prix and just did a year or two of French internationals. Perry Leesk was a another English rider, and, mm-hmm. and he would do the occasional GP, but Perry's a little bit older than me. Sure, he won't mind me saying that, you know, he, he was past his best days, yeah. but he made a very good living just racing French internationals every week. Um, and some of them he'd come up against, if it was a, a, a weekend where there were, wasn't a GP on, then he'd get some of the GP riders coming up against him. But there'd be other times when it clashed with the GP, he'd still be racing an international in France, and 
you know, he, make he some might money. win yeah. all the races quite easily and make some good money. Right, right, right. Uh, in 85, uh, you, you started riding a Mako. And, and, Rob, I hate to tell you this, but they were good in 82. By 85, they were really bad. <laughs> you should have. How did that happen? Uh, how did it happen? It, it happened because, um, you know, at that stage, I, I hadn't done particularly well. You know, I was in the British Championship. I'd done a couple of GPs in 84, but really there were no other deals coming along. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mako importer in, in Britain said, you know, I can do something with you on a Mako. We've got some bikes and parts. And, you know, in, in my naivety, I thought, oh, it'll be okay. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 85 Mako wasn't particularly good. I started doing all of the 500 GPs on that Mako. Oh, boy. And, in fact, I was I was running uh, I was running tenths in one because, bear in mind, I hadn't done a lot. And so I was really quite pumped to be to be running in tenth place and, and had a mechanical and, and, and a DNF because of that. Um, and then eventually that Mako tried to kill me because it, it went into a neutral between third and fourth oh, over, of course of course over like a 50 mile an hour ski jump and it just endowed me into the ground and uh, and, and after that I, I said I'm not going to ride a Mako again yeah but because I'd had some, some uh, good showings in GPs I've only got scored the points up to that point uh-huh. I rang at Kawasaki and said is there anything you can do for me and they were able to give me one bike um and bearing in mind, this was like July. Yeah. Uh, there were no other bikes about. I, I managed, we couldn't even buy one in the UK. I managed to buy a second bike in Belgium, um, of all places. And so I finished the season on Kawasaki. And then my first points were something like a 10th place at the last GP. So I'd, I'd suddenly kind of got up to, to speed. Uh-huh. Um, and then on the back of scoring those points, I then got to do the donations. Uh, well, I was going to ask, how does sure yeah, on your list? Yeah, exactly. It is. And so how does that work? How does that happen? Are you, you're, you're riding 500s, but you're put on a 125. Does somebody turn it down? Do you, does somebody get hurt? How does that work? It, it was bureaucracy. Um, <laughs> nice. Nice. It was bureaucracy. <laughs> what happened is the, the English Federation, the English AMA, the ACU, yep. they scheduled a national 125 and 250 championship on the same day as the nations. And so all of the UK teams, factories, manufacturers, whatever you call them, Mm -hmm. um, they were saying, we're not going to release our 250 rider to go and race for Britain at the nations because we want him to race the last round of the national 250 championship. Yeah. So there was some sort of argument going on between the ACU and the manufacturers over this date clash. And so there was nobody to ride a 125. I certainly wasn't a 125 rider. Yeah. Um, and then literally with with a week before the race, um, th- th- this was at an impasse. You know, nobody was mm-hmm. going to step up and, and ride it. And I just said to somebody, I'll ride a 125. Yeah. Uh, next thing I know, I have the ACU on the phone saying, <laughs> I heard you'll ride a 125. And I said, yeah. Uh, and they said, okay, you're in. And, and in fact, I was just checking on some dates. You're like, what? I, I found it. It was, <laughs> it was li- literally a week before the race in, in Galdorf. It was probably, by the time I got the call, it was probably 10 days before the race. And I was ama- announced as a team member uh-huh. on the Sunday before the, the following week's race. So I spoke to Kawasaki and said, hey, good news. I'm riding the 125 in the Nations. Can I get a 125? And they said no. 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 <laughs> No, no, for two reasons. One, we don't have any 125s, any new ones, because it's September, yeah. and the next, the 86 bikes aren't in yet. 
Um, and secondly, we can't be seen to be supporting you when we're in dispute with the ACU about this take So, sorry, we can't help you. So, I then thought, what am I going to do? I've been picked for the team. I've got no bike. So, I thought, I'm not going to miss the opportunity. You know, for me, it was a dream come true mm-hmm. to be picked to represent your country. And in fact, I'm looking at the at the cap that I received right now in my office that I've um, got for that, this sort of ceremonial cap. If you've never heard the term that football, the soccer players use, that they've been capped for their country, uh, no. I was wondering what that meant. Yeah. It's, it's a British term. You know, this player's got so many caps, and I never knew what that meant. But after I did this, they present you with a ceremonial sort oh. of velvety cap. Now, I'm looking out right now. Nice. Um, so I thought, anyway, so I thought, I'll go out and buy one, two, five. But because it was September, there yeah. were no new one two fives available. Right. So I ended up having to buy a used one out of the small ads of Trials and Motocross News. Um, it was the only one I could find. It had been used by a schoolboy, so it had a season's use. Um, <laughs> and I sent my mechanic out to buy it because I thought that they might charge more money if they saw it was for me. Yeah. Uh, so I sent my mechanic out because he was more anonymous. He bought this bike. The guy selling it even gave us a bike stand. And oh, nice. Spare clutch lever. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, Perfect. So, so that guy had no idea what his son's bike was going to be used for. His yeah. son was retiring. Yeah. And I got this bike about seven days before. I rode it once and then my mechanic then drove off to, to Gaildorf in Germany with a completely stock second-hand 125, which uh, I would use to line up against Ron Sheen and his, <laughs> on his factory Honda. $100,000 factory uh, Honda. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hard pack, wide open track. This was the first year of no trophy designations, so they combined everybody into different sizes. 60 dudes on the gate, I think, at some point, right? It was 62. It was 62. <laughs> there, was, there were, what, 21 teams of three. Uh-huh. And as you say, it was the first time that they'd, they'd run it as a combined all classes together. 62 guys. There you go. And so they hadn't figured out yet to do the, you know, the 125s yeah. and 250s and then the 250s and 500s. Right, so it was, right. it was 62 riders on the line. Um, and it was crazy. Uh, it was hard pack. It was, oh, it was fast. Yeah. Um, it yep. started to rain a bit as well. And so hard pack with a bit of water <laughs> on it was really slippy. Are you on a stock? Um, you on a stock KX? Just stock. Yeah. I was on a stock worn out. Did you have a KX. pipe? Did you have a pipe and silencer? No, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. We put some rental handlebars on it. Okay. And some and some new tires. Yeah. And, and that was it. It was completely stock. We had no parts for it because I had a 500. Right. You know, normally I had a van full of 500 parts, but no. You had a clutch lever and a stand, though. <laughs> we, had a, we had a stand, yeah. And so, you know, I can't remember what gate pick we, we had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, team number one gets first gate pick and 21st gate pick. Yeah, and, and 60. You know, yeah. And so on. Right. 42nd, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but I remember wheeling my bike onto the line alongside David Bailey. Again, a, a, a real hero of mine. Yeah. If I ever had a hero in motocross, it is Bailey. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's David Bailey on his 500. And uh, so the gate th- dropped, and off he went, and he was just gone. Uh, who was the third guy on British that year? Thorpe and you? Kurt Nickel. Oh, Nickel. Okay, Kurt all right. Nickel. Yep. Yeah, because you know, just going back to the selection thing, I was yeah. a 500 guy. So when, when you've got Dave Thorpe, reigning champion, you got Kurt Nickel, who's, you know, lead factory Kawasaki rider, and both on 500s. What are the chances of me ever getting picked to ride the nations, you know, on a 500? Yeah, yeah, yeah. none. Yeah. So that's why I was so grateful for the opportunity to do it on the 125. But Kurt broke his leg. He had to drop down to the 250, which he didn't like doing. Uh-huh. But because Thorpey was top dog, he obviously got 
to say I'm on a 500. Yep. So Kurt rode the 250, but he crashed on Saturday and broke his leg. So we were also down to two guys rather than three. Oh, um, so that made it uh, particularly difficult on the Sunday. I think it was... Uh, how many results would we have normally? We'd have six. I think it was best four of six results. Okay. So we were able to drop Kurt's two results. But yeah. it meant that both are David's and both are mine. Yep. Had to count. I think a Canadian guy did really well in 125s that year, too. You probably were dicing with him. A guy named Al Dick was pretty good on a Yamaha. Race tech suspension and engines, people. Pulpum X18 is the code to save. Breaking through the limitations of OEM designs, Racetech specializing in high-performance suspension, parts, service, and setups, modifying stock suspension components to perform at the highest level. Discover why more top privateers trust Racetech, guys like the HEP Suzuki team, and many more in the pits use Racetech for their suspension and engines mods. Pulpum X18, you can save using the code. Please check them out, Racetech.com. Do it. Maxxis Tires, from your bike to your truck and almost everything with wheels in between, Maxxis Tires will have you hooking up, pulling the whole shot, and beating your competition. One of the world's most trusted tire brands, Maxxis delivers high-quality tire products that perform no matter what the terrain or conditions. If you don't believe me, just ask the king, Jeremy McGrath. So, okay. So sixth place you got in 125s, and uh, like you said, lined up next to Bailey, which is pretty awesome, on your stock KX 125 with handlebars on it. Um, so the next year, Factory Cowie, uh, they, they put you a full factory deal, so your teammate would be who, Joe Bay? And well, you've got Joe Bay and Nickel were in the, the full factory team. I was, I was given the, the, the year-old factory bike. Oh, okay, is that how it does? Bikes, okay. I was given 80, yep. 85 factory bikes. So you've got Thorpe, uh, sorry, you've got Mickle and you've got Jabay, uh on the, the factory team, and then they gave me factory bikes. Um, but the, the problem with that, I mean, the bike was, was really good. It was a full factory 500. Yeah. You don't see those anymore. No. Nope. Um, but there wasn't a lot of spares for it, so we had to go very careful with the spares. And so, consequently, I never practiced on a factory bike. I only had a, a production bike to practice on. And so really, oh, okay. it was not anything yeah. like what I was racing on. So That's tough. Um, yeah, that's a tough deal. Because um, I remember when Joe Bay, when he went from Suzuki to Cowie, like, that thing was pretty trick back in the day. Like, Cowie, every, I don't know if it was that good, but Cowie was, like, pretty cool. They had water cooling before a lot of guys, and um, it looked, when Joe Bay first got on it, like it was a good bike. It, it looked trick, um, you know, and it, it was a good bike. You know, there was a, a difference between a factory bike and a production bike. Mm-hmm. The power delivery and, and the suspension was better. But that was, in my particular situation, kind of cancelled out by the fact that I was practicing on a production bike. Yeah. So you get to learn the power and you get to learn particularly the limits of the suspension when you're practicing the week. You then go on the better bike. Now, you may think, ah, well, you're going to think it's fabulous because you're on the better bike at the weekend. But you... you you know, you're coming into corners and you know the speed that, that you're comfortable coming in. Yeah. And you don't realize that, well, actually, I can go another yard deeper. Mm-hmm. Your brakes corner. are better. Yeah, your brakes are better. Suspension's uh, better. Yeah. And so I was always, each, each weekend, I was always trying to redefine where the limits were all the time. But uh, but it, it was a good bike. It was it was trick. But I'll give you one example. The, the, the triple clamps on it. People used to 
used to stand by the side of my truck and, you know, you'd hear fans discussing the bike as it was stood there. And you'd, you'd hear them, you'd see them point at the triple clamps and say, look at those, they're really trick. They were these sort of hand-welded, fabricated yeah. things. But actually, they were like butter. If you, if you crash, they would bend. Oh, jeez. So, so, I was never said anything at the time, but they actually were as... Uh, as, as strong as perhaps they looked. Right, right. Um, yeah, I've seen some on Wardy, some of Wardy's old bikes. They got these big old welds on them. They look like they're That's fat. It. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're not, you know, they, they weren't sort of billet. They, they, the, the, the bits that actually clamped yep. onto the tubes, I think, were billet. And then they were fabricated, welded together with kind of rectangular tubing in between. And I, I don't know what the story was, but if, if you crashed a certain way, you'd, you'd then think you got bent bars, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or the yeah. forks were twisted. But it wasn't the forks, it was the triple clamps that had bent. Uh, ninth overall, though, in the 500s. That's good. Uh, it was, yeah. Uh, again, I, I still can't believe that I did that, really. <laughs> this guy from, from Worcester that just started out riding dirt bikes. Yeah. You know, what was really cool about that season is that uh, at the, the Sittendorf was the opening GP. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the opening GP was in uh, was in Switzerland, but it's cancelled because it snowed. So the first GP of the year, real one, was at Sittendorf. I hadn't qualified for that the year before on my maker. Okay. And so um, I remember saying to my dad, he hadn't gone for that race. I remember ringing him up and saying, I haven't qualified. This was in 85. Yeah. And saying, there's not a lot of point in me traveling, driving a thousand miles if I'm just not, not fast enough to qualify. Yeah. And my dad said to me, Rob, you never qualify if you don't go. Um, and that kind of fired me up and I went out the next, to the next GP in 85 and qualified. But anyway, 12 months later, I go back to Sittendorf. Uh-huh. I think I was second in the qualifying and then came away with, with joint second overall. So even though I was ninth in 86 for the championship, for the first week between the first and second yeah. GPs, I was tied on second in the world championship. So Yeah. Uh, how was Joe Bay to, as a teammate? How much interaction did you have with him? How was he? Did you ever get to ride his his eighty six bike? I mean, how, how was uh, that? No, I actually. Funny enough, I don't think I ever spoke to George. He, he kept himself <laughs> to himself. Yeah. Um, you know, back then it wasn't like we were all in a big semi. Um, he had his own truck and his own mechanic, and he was based in Belgium. Kurt had his own truck. He was based in the UK. I was based in the UK. George would, would park elsewhere, and uh, I don't think I ever spoke to him. Um, I'd, have a, I'd had a bit of a run-in with him, I think at the end of 85, when he, I think uh, I was at the back of the pack, and he'd come out to lap me, and he, he accused me of holding it up. I'd, I had no idea I was doing that. So I remember him getting a little bit... Um, Annoyed with me then, but, uh, but 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 no. Generally, I just our paths never really crossed. Wow. You know, there's some you know the other guys, uh, Andre Maller. Uh, I never really got to talk to Andre a great deal. You know, you you, you go to the GPs, and, you know, you, you you form those bonds, you form those friendships, and obviously the, the British riders all get on good, and you know we got yeah. on with some of the others. But there are some riders that you have know, a problem with them. But you know, your paths just had never crossed. You never really got to know them. Um, Whereas somebody like Harkin Carklist or Hawken, as it's supposed to be pronounced, um, you know, I, yeah. I somehow came to meet Hawken and we became quite friendly. And I would see him at French internationals, and you know, he was a really cool guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. I, you would think Kawasaki would have some test sessions, or they would have some media ride days, or something where you would interact with Kurt and George and and all that. But it, yeah, it's it, not. It, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. Yeah. For me, Steve. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Kawasaki back then was run out of the UK. Um, mm-hmm. 
the was that Alec Wright? The, the, the guy's name? Alec. Alec, Alec Wright. Wright yeah. Yes. Yep. And uh, you know, he's, the, the guy's passed away now, so I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But he, he didn't have a great deal of empathy in, in what it took to be a motocross rider. Oh, okay. Um, um, and when I went back to them in '88. This is on production bikes. To give you an example, I I didn't get a bike to ride of any description until um, the first week of February. Oh, so I boy. didn't even sit on a bike until February. Yeah. And then our first British Championship was like 10 days from that, that time. So there were a lot of things that, um, that, that perhaps could have been better. Mm-hmm. You know what's uh, looking back on the, that era that you raced in, you know, you raced against these guys and... and Jobe, we talked about Thorpe, Nickel, Malherbe, Gabors was in the 250s and 87, then he was up into 500s. Um, like, what a special kind of era of GP motocross, man. I mean, I guess a lot of it was, you know, due to the factory Honda machines or some of it was, because I used to drool over those things. But um, what, a, what a cool era that you were involved in with all these kind of legends of guys that would, you know, race week in and week out. Uh I, I think it is, you know. It, it's, I don't like to sort of say, yeah, you know, the era I raced in was, you know, yeah, yeah. the real legends. I, I just happened to be born at the right time, I, I suppose. I remember speaking to Paul Cooper some years later, another Paul from 250 GPs in the 90s, and he said, oh, man, I wish I was born a few years earlier. I would have loved to have ridden in that era that, that you were in. But, yeah, you know, now we are, you know, what is it, 35 years later yeah. or something like that. You look back and you think, Actually, that was a special time. In 86, I think there were nine world champions racing yeah. at GP at Sittendorf. Sure, yeah. Nine absolutely. world champions. You know, Honda were a powerhouse. They had awesome bikes. They had Mallard, the Boars, and Thorpe. You've still got Carl Fisk going fast. Um, his but, teammate, Lee Pearson. You've yeah. got Joe Bay. You've got Nickel. You've got Graham Royce. You've got people like Corrado Maddy that have moved up from... Yeah, uh, from 125, Heinz Kindergartner, Kindergartner yeah. reigning 250 champion. What a lovely man he was. Had some great battles with Heinz, you know. And it was just a yep. rather like you see in MXGP today. It's it's a real concentration of talent that are coming in that was coming in from other uh, other classes mm-hmm. uh, that just all sort of uh, hit that one year in '86. And you know, and I was very fortunate not only to be racing in that, but to have the best result against those guys. Yeah, no, it's, it's something really cool. Where's the where's the trophy from there? Where's the plaque or wherever? You got it? Uh, I don't think I got anything for the, really? for the overall oh, for the season, no. I mean, again, I'm... No, I was talking I about I was talking about Sittendorf. I was talking about Sittendorf. Uh, uh, Sittendorf. Yeah. Um, I, what do you got? Ah, well, there you go. I didn't get anything for that because <laughs> I, was joint sec- I was joint second overall with with three other guys. I think Mallard won it, and then it was Jabez, oh, yeah. and me, and we were all on equal points, and I missed out on the tie break. So even oh. though I was second in the points, I didn't get on the podium. Oh, damn it. Isn't that a bummer? Yeah, that's, and that's, those are the days they only gave back to 12 or 15, right? Positions or something, points, right? GP points? Uh, points, points went back to 15. 15, yeah. yeah. And I think prize, um, prize money went back to 25th. How much better in 86, 87 were those Hondas over everybody else, and did you ever get a chance to ride one? Uh, yes, they were uh, amazing bikes. I did get a chance to ride Thorpe's once um, when he was practicing in the UK. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what year it would have been, probably yep. 86, 
So it was a real quick one with a low tank. Yeah. And I rode it on a sand track and, and just thought it was it was so um, it was so tractable. And it seemed that whatever revs that you, you were at, <laughs> you were it was fine. The same amount yeah. acceleration. Right, right. Like a current, like a current 450. Yeah, yeah. This production bike had a huge hit of power. You know, it's very uncontrollable. Um, with Thorpe's bike, just you want to go faster, you just turn the throttle a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't really tell the suspension because it was a really gnarly, whooped out, sandy gravel yeah, yeah. track that we were practicing on. But I, I did have a, a very careful uh, couple of laps on that bike. I didn't want to break it. Um, <laughs> exactly but yeah, right. I, I think back back then, compared to a production bike, there was a there was a big advantage. The, the factory bike that I rode, you know, it certainly was an advantage over a production bike. The yeah. way the power was delivered and, you know, the things that you might not even think of, just how how smooth the power was right off the very bottom. You know, people maybe think that a factory bike is going to be way faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're faster, but they're, they're faster without you in the places you didn't really expect it to be. You know, just faster coming out of corners. I rode a lot of factory bikes after I quit racing. Yeah. Because I, I did test riding for dirt bike riding, so I got to ride a lot of factory yeah, bikes. Yeah. I rode that perimeter frame 500 that Thorpe didn't like. Oh, boy. With the huge, with the huge uh, square addition to the gas tank on the top. Yeah, remember that thing? Yeah, you, you remember that one. <laughs> so I, I rode that. I rode both uh, two of Kurt's KTMs and, and quite a lot of other right. factory bikes. In fact, I saw Greg Albertine at Anaheim. Uh -huh. um, and Davey introduced me to him. Sorry, we're going off on a tangent here. I saw Greg Albertine, and I said, we have met before because I tested your bike in 94. And he said, did you? <laughs> your Honda is and, Honda. And I got yeah. the pictures on my on the website. So I got, and so I put them up on my phone. and said, there you go. Look, and he said, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Now. Uh, um, so, yeah, factory bikes, the particularly the 500s, just made you faster. It, it, just coming out of corners, you know? There was no drama. Mm -hmm. the, the back wheel didn't step out. It didn't wheelie. It just hooked up, and it just drove. Uh, um, the 86 Hondas, the uh, production rule was in USA now, and those guys came to Carlsbad, and those 86 Honda RC500s were so trick, so amazing. Um, and Wobbles, Stock Wobbles has got one or rebuilt one or something, and I keep telling him to send me photos of it, but I don't know. He's been he, trying to find he it. He rebuilt, because all the Thorpe's bikes, Thorpe got presented three factory Hondas. He's 85, he's 86, and he's 89. Mm -hmm. um, and he sold those off a few years ago. And so uh, Rob Walters, Doc Bob, as they call him, he rebuilt the 86 for the guy that owns it now. Yeah, yeah. A year or so ago. And my, my buddy in South Africa actually bought the 85. And so Thorpe's 85 Honda was sat in my garage uh, for quite a while. Oh, okay, uh, before you until, shipped it to him. It was yeah. shipped before I shipped it to. Oh, that's they were awesome. Inside to those to those bikes, but they've all now managed to find internals for them and, oh, wow. and get them running. Ah. But yeah, they certainly were a trick, those Hondas. Oh, they were unbelievable. It's cool that you got to ride one. I just talked to Doug Dubach the other day, and he got to ride one of those YZM 500s. And uh, yeah. the aluminum, fr and he said it wasn't that good. He said it kind of, kind of ruined the mythology for him. Um, it wasn't that great to ride one, but uh, I was like, well, oh, you know. You're talking about factory bikes. You know, I did ride Zorps for a couple of laps, but actually, in all honesty, the best 500 that I ever rode mm -hmm. was Kurt Nichols' KTM. Was it? Yeah. When this is after I quit racing, and I rode that bike twice, once on a sand track, and once the next year on a, on a hard track, and it was just. And made everything about that bike was just so um, developed, so mm -hmm. fine tuned. Everything worked so well on it. The power was beautiful. It was 
smooth, it hooked up. The forks, he had conventional Marzocchi forks, they were just amazing. You know, you, you didn't have to pick lines to miss the braking bumps, you just went wherever you want, you didn't feel them. The brakes were amazing, everything about it was, was yeah. good. So I actually think that was better than the bike I rode at Forks. Um Looking through your results a little bit, and, and maybe I'm wrong, it looks like you never ventured over to do a USGP. Were you hurt? Did you did you not be able to go, or am I wrong? Did no, you... I did. I did do the. I did the last ever one in '86. Oh, okay. So All in '86, right. we did we Carl's did Canada bad. the first week, Ch- Chatsworth. Uh huh. Chatsworth, I think, and then uh, it was Carlsbad the week over, and I think I had I had one thirteenth in one of the motos, um, and that was a good little trip because we we hooked up with. Kawasaki in the US uh-huh. and we got bikes and a truck from them to go practicing and I went practicing with Jeff Ward at De Anza oh, yeah. in California yeah, yeah. and so we went, went well they call it testing these days but we went practicing <laughs> and uh, and Jeff Ward was there and uh, he was De Anza was just a burnt out concrete uh-huh. Adobe hard pack track um, and I got my chest protector on like all Euros do and I put elbows pads elbow pads on and Jeff Ward just pulled on this white Sinisalo jersey, and that <laughs> was it. And yeah, I, said, yeah. I said, are you not worried about crashing and skidding your elbows? And he just looked at me, and he said, you know, I've crashed once this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was in June or July or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. He only crashed his bike once. Crashed once, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Funny. So, yeah, that would have been, well, that would have been good practice for Carlsbad then in 86. That would have yeah, been that's, perfect. That's right. went there, yeah. So, oh. so I raced the Carlsbad GP, and then 87, I came back and did the Golden State series, so I raced it at oh, least cool. another time there. And uh, you did the whole Golden State thing? That was been pretty fun. Uh, I did, yeah, yep. that was good. We stopped with Eddie Cole. I was a Honda then. We got a deal with Answer Clothing, um, uh, and I stopped at Eddie Cole's house along oh. with my teammate Mark Banks and yep. uh, our two mechanics, and we stopped at his house for six weeks or whatever. Oh, wow. Long it took to do the Golden State. Nice. That would have been um, fun, right? And it was really good, yeah. Um, and that was, in fact, you'll remember this, Steve. That was the year that the first race, uh, I can't remember the name of the track, um, out by Victorville somewhere, and it was it was muddy. Sun, think, probably sunrise, race, yeah. probably Adelanto sunrise. Sunrise, yep. Adelanto, Adelanto, which and is sunrise. Ricky Johnson, yeah. Ron Machine, yep. Ricky Johnson and Ron Machine had a fight. Can you remember that? <laughs> yep, yep. They, uh, they uh, uh, Lachine uh, locked himself in a box fan. RJ took a swing at him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Nineteen eighty-seven. That, oh. that was the opening opening round. Um, I think, again, speaking about a Canadian guy, I think a Canadian guy made the podium there. I was very excited as a young young Canadian motocross fan. So, um, Who's that? I think it was Al Dick, number 122 on a Honda okay. 125. He, uh, I think he made the podium there. Um, well, it's a real, real interesting uh, career, for sure, for you. It's... Uh, it's cool that you appreciate. It. You look back and, like you said, you don't want to, you know, toot your horn and everything. But it was interesting that you know. I think you, like me, can look back at those mid to late eighties at those all those guys and be like, "Wow, that's a special group of guys, a special group of of talent." Did they did they all get along, or did Thorpe and Nickel hate each other, or and and nobody liked Joe Bay, or like did, how was the relationship with all those dudes? Uh, it was pretty good. I wasn't aware of any. Um any rivalries like that. You know, mm-hmm. Kurt and Dave were the rivals, obviously, but yeah. they, were, they were friends as well. I don't think they went out for dinner together. But, you know, all the Brits got along. Um, you know, all the riders did. The, the camaraderie was one of the, the, the things that I missed most when I stopped riding. You mm-hmm. know, I missed being part of the show, and I missed 
being with those guys because we would be travelling from race to race. Very few people flew to the races. Yeah, yeah. Thorpe did. He would he would come home in the week, but you know the rest of us we drove from race to race, and I preferred it like that. Um, so you know you'd go from France or wherever to to Austria. Uh, you'd usually kind of hook up with a couple of other guys, other friends, other riders uh, on the way somewhere. Sometimes we'd stop at someone's house. And there's a, a, a German guy you probably haven't heard of him called Peter Mayer. He goes to GPs. Lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. Um, he lived in Germany. If we were in France and we were going past this, you know, through Germany, he'd say, come and stop at my house for the week. And so oh, cool. We'd, we'd go and stop there. and That would then give us somewhere to uh, to base ourselves and get our kit clean and, and go training and practicing and that sort of thing. Um, and so it was this whole traveling circus that was going between races that everybody got along. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody spoke brilliant English. Yeah. There was an Italian guy called Giovanni Cavatorta. Um, again, lovely man. Didn't speak a whole lot of English, but it didn't stop us having a good conversation, you know? Yeah, yeah. You'd see him and he'd smile and, and laugh and he'd say, you, 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 how you finish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, ah, you point your fingers and go, ah, I was 10th. And <laughs> he'd then, you know, gesture that he was 15th, but he had a big crash and he'd mm-hmm. do a gesture for a crash. And, um, yeah. And it, it, it was, it was good. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to, have, and, and feel fortunate to have been, part of that that era um but it's when you hear and and see you know on facebook or forums the the, the affection with, with which other people which with, with which the fans look back at that, mm-hmm. that era mm-hmm. um and and to us guys you know at the time I, I just thought you know i'm just a guy from worcester riding my bike and you know i've done okay but it's, it's when you see the 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 appreciation from from other people yeah of, of what not just myself, but you know all of these the GT riders did back in that time. That makes you think, yeah, actually, yeah, it, it probably was a special time. Yeah, because you don't see that same love for the seventies or the nineties. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, you're absolutely right. So before we let you go on the uh, Fly Racing Racer X podcast, presented by Maxis Tires and Alpine Stars, Rob Andrews, I'm going to get you to give me your all-time British GP rider rankings. Noyce, Thorpe, oh. <laughs> Nicole, Malin, Anstey, Searle, Jeremy Watley you brought up earlier. What do you think? Oh, Steve, you, you, you could have given me some advance notice of this one. I just thought <laughs> no, I just thought of this as we were talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's difficult. I'd have to put Thorpe, right? Thorpe at the top. Right. Because Thorpe was just um he was just a winning machine. Uh he he trained really hard, and you know I've got a theory that you've got riders that have got talent, uh-huh. and you've got some riders that have got drive and determination and heart. Right. And and personally, I think I wasn't that talented, but I worked hard at it. Right. Um, somebody like Jeremy Watley and Rob Herring, very very talented, but I don't think they worked that hard at it. When you get somebody that's got both, you has got talent and heart and dedication mm-hmm. and drive, that's when you get somebody like Thorpe, and that's when you get a champion. Um, so I'd have to put Thorpe at the top. Um, you know, statistically, he's yep. the greatest. He's won three sure. championships. Oh, who would be second? 
I mean, Nickel I, never won, but he got second Nickel, 14 times, right? That have to be have to be Kurt, yeah. Um, <laughs> even though he's missed the second place, I saw him when I was at. Anaheim oh, good, well. yeah, yeah. Hasn't I watched him racing at Glen Helen, and he looks better today than he ever did when he raced two pools. <laughs> his, his styles change for the better. Yeah, yeah. American influence yeah, on him, right? <laughs> yeah. Now Kurt's got to be up there because he was he had a long career. He's uh, uh, he didn't quite win it, but. Um, he, he should have won it had he not um, uh, pulled out of the race at the British GP rather than he keep going and his gate didn't drop one year. That would have given him the extra points to win it. But um, who would be third? I don't know. We had some immensely talented riders. You know, Mayden was very talented. Robbie Herring was very talented. Never won. Jamie Dobb won a world championship, but he just won the one in... You know, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. You know, perhaps uh, not the strongest yeah, yep. in the one two five class. Uh, Graham Noyce was an animal. You know, he would be he would be up there. Um, but you got guys before him as well. You know, people like Jeff Smith and Dave. Yeah, Jeff Banks. I don't know, or something? Don't know yeah, yeah. enough. Of, yeah, I don't know enough about them. You know, they were before my time to to really be able to judge them. Um, Anstey uh, Junior. Max is yep. certainly getting there. Um, so I don't know. I, I really don't know who I'd say third. <laughs> um, um, well, wait. Do we do we count Herring because he's he's South African? But we count him. Uh, do he's we? British. He's British. Apparently, he wrote for Britain on the Nations team. Oh, um, apparently, he's... he's British and okay. British passport or right. something. Right. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, Herring. You know, yeah. one of the fastest. Yeah. But uh, Malin too. Malin is Malin's had some really good results for a, for a long time. Yeah, you know? Paul, Paul, yeah. He's, uh, he, he was very, very stylish as well. And, uh, you know, that, that one-off ride at Roggenberg, of course, at the Nations, that was yeah. his crowning uh, glory. But he never really um, duplicated that. You know, he had a, a couple of 500 GP wins. He won at Castelnaudan, his first 500 GP win, and he won that going away. So he was very good. Uh, you know, he, he came up very early on a 500, did Paul. You know, yeah. most riders would have gone on a 250 for many years, yeah. but Alec Wright said go on a 500, and he he he, uh, he did well. It's funny, just like going back to it, Herring. This, oh, go ahead. Sorry, just going back to Herring. This thing, you just reminded me of a story. Yeah, I really hope, kind of hope this is true. That Rob Herring was inconsistent but blinding fast. Right. And somebody told me that he was leading a race once, a British Championship or a GP. I'm not sure. Maybe a British Championship, and he crashed out of the lead. And afterwards, his dad said to him, what happened there? And Rob said, I don't know. I suddenly started thinking about light bulbs. <laughs> that, well, so, yeah. There we there go, everybody. Go. Rob Herring, everybody. I, Rob Herring, yeah. I, I don't <laughs> If that's not true, Rob, and you, you end up listening to this, I do apologize. Yeah. I heard that story second hand, but I, I think it's kind of cute, and I... I I like that story. I, tr- I kind of hope it's true. I tried to do one of these with him. He was a really hard guy to get a hold of. I got his contact through Malin, and we we set a few dates, and he he couldn't do them. And then I just kind of forgot and figured if he wanted to do it, he would have contacted me, you know. But I was interested in talking to Rob for sure about about some of his uh, career. He's interesting. Um, uh, Rob, you brought he was up never uh, as fast as when he sorry he's never as fast as when he first came over when he first came to the UK yep. and he and he was trying to qualify through our support championship to get into the main British championship. I think that was the fastest he ever was. That guy was just insane. He'd ride a <laughs> five hundred like a one twenty five. Yeah, I've never seen anybody ride like that. And everybody said when he qualifies out of the support championship and goes into the main British championship, he's going to kill you guys. Yeah, you know he was turning. 
five seconds a lap faster than you know Thorpe or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but then he, he just couldn't hold it together. Crashed and crashed, and then eventually it slowed him down. Um, you mentioned Hacking Carlquist earlier, and uh, he passed away a few months ago. Um, the stories about him, also, obviously everybody knows about stopping for a beer in 87 when he was checking out. They know the world championship. Uh, he punched a hole in the van. He pretended to bury his bike one time. <laughs> what a guy. What, what, what an interesting uh, guy he was. I, I've heard all of those stories, yep. and I don't know whether they are true. <laughs> Again, I kind of hope that they're, they're true. Um, he, 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 I guess, could have a fiery temper. You know, I, I never went round to his van just as he came back from having a bad race. So I, I never got to see that. But, you know, aren't we all like that? You know, if, if, if I had a bad race or if I made a stupid mistake on the last lap and somebody got me or I crashed or something like that, I would be fuming when I got back to the van. Yeah. I, I would be angry with myself. And, and I'm sure everybody's the same. With motocross riders, if, if you don't, if you don't feel like that, maybe you're not going to be a successful motocross rider. Yeah. I don't know. You have to control it, obviously. But um, I only ever found Hawken uh, a really nice guy, fun guy to be around. He used to, uh, he didn't fly to and from the races. He would travel in his van with his mechanic and his wife or girlfriend um, in a caravan. And so we would see him on the road sometimes. And, you know, sometimes you'd end up pitting by them because there was none of this, you know, Honda Park in this yeah. part of the pits and Yamaha Park there. You just park wherever you wherever you fancied. And so sometimes we'd be next to him and, and he was a lovely guy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it really, the stories almost make him out to be this monster, right? Or this animal or whatever. But like you said, he's just a nice guy. Just, it, yeah. Yeah, you know, mate, I'm sure there must be an element of truth to those incidents. But, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I can remember coming back to the van and being absolutely fuming and wanting to punch the van because something had happened yeah. in Luxembourg. And this, and this, just as I pulled up and let my bike against the truck, um, I didn't even put it on the stand. I was that angry. I turned around and there was a fan there asking for my autograph. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and even though I was fuming inside, I just thought, I just got to calm down here. Yeah. So I signed this thing to the guy and then went in the truck and then, you know, let off a bit of steam yeah. in there. And then this guy's, this, this fan's dad or somebody had taken a photo of this. And some time later, they ended up giving me the photo. And I remember the incident. Ah. And I never said anything <laughs> yeah, to anybody. Yeah. But I remember there's a picture of me still with my helmet on it. And I'm thinking, I know that inside that helmet, I'm absolutely furious. Yeah, you're, just, yeah, you're ready to <laughs> lose it, right? Wanted me to sign it. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, cool, Rob. Uh, thanks for the time, man. I, I really appreciate it. Nice walk down memory lane. Congrats on 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 the long and pretty pretty successful career. Like you said, you never ever thought you would ever stand on the podium or get, get top tens or you know what I mean. It's, it's really it sounds like you really appreciate the time that you that you have. Yeah. So. That's cool. And I never thought that this this long later I'd still be involved in it. You know, we've got the first GP coming up in three weeks. Uh, I'll be doing a commentary on Eurosport with Jack Burnicle, so a little plug for Eurosport there. Yeah. Watch it there rather than the other channel because you'll see it in HD. But really looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, really thrilled that after all these years I still get to do stuff like that and speak to people like you and it's... Yeah, it's a real privilege. no, it's 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 big part of your whole life. Same with me and everything else. Who knew that it yeah. would, it would, we would yeah. end up all, all having a career racing dirt bikes or talking about dirt bikes? It's amazing. It's, it's yeah. simply amazing. Yeah. Um, Best thing in the world. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, and hopefully we meet sometime soon. Thanks, man.
Okay. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. it was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Storbeck is that he never said sorry. Because Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and Miguel was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't been there. The Hurricane Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Holland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse. I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in, I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to enjoy these and over 800 great motocross podcasts. Hey, 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 hey.